14-year-old Deborah Harding was walking home from school when she was abducted, raped, and left outside in the bitter cold to die. Almost worse was being at home during the physical and psychological abuse from her mother and watching her father allow it. Let's find out how Deborah was able to triumph over her trauma. Hey everybody, welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I want you to know that if you're interested in the intersection of faith and true crime the way I am, then this is the podcast for you. I want to share that I think we all have a calling as a PI, but a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So I want to dive into today's case, and I want us to each think about one simple act that we can do that will make a significant difference for victims and their families in the true crime world. This is Season 3, Episode 11, and our book this week is Dancing with the Octopus, a memoir of crime, and our guest is Sarah Schellenbarger. Sarah is a host, producer, and writer at the Life Network for Women. She also hosts Frame Your Week with the Word and founded H22 Ministries, which we'll talk about later. Now, let's jump into Deborah's story. One of the most amazing parts of Deborah's story happened in 2003 when she faced her kidnapper and rapist at his parole hearing. But everything started 25 years before that, when he had left her to die after a failed attempt at getting ransom from her father. Deborah was in junior high that year, and classes had let out early because an ice storm was rolling in. It was the day before Thanksgiving, but Deborah hung around because she had choir practice at the church that she attended, which was just across the street from her school. She killed some time at a nearby mall, and then as she was making her way back for choir practice, she happened to cross paths with 19-year-old Charles Goodwin. Charles had been released from a youth reformatory just 10 days before he was cruising around in a van and he saw Deborah. He decided that he needed to find a way to get some quick cash because his family was kind of on his back to get a job, to be productive, and he decided he would rather just find a scheme where he could take care of it quickly. He saw Deborah and he remembered this movie that he'd seen about someone who had been kidnapped for ransom. He quickly blocked Deborah's path with his van and used a knife that he had to force her into the vehicle. For poor Deborah, this wasn't the first time she'd seen someone wielding a knife. The first time had been a violent outburst from her mother. Her mother once took her to visit a neighbor's house saying, let's go see their chickens. But what she didn't tell Deborah was that they were getting ready to chop off the head of one of those chickens. Living like this taught Deborah to stay calm in the face of her mother's many wild mood swings, and that ability just may have saved her life. Charles babbled at her as he tried to justify kidnapping her, and to keep him calm, she simply agreed with him. Charles noticed that Deborah was wearing a cross necklace and asked her if she was a Christian. He said that he certainly must not be if he had done what he had just done, especially since his dad was a Baptist preacher. Deborah tried to reassure him that God still loved him, which really seemed to surprise him. And he explained to her that he never would have done what he was doing to her, except that he needed the money. He asked her if she thought that her dad would give him money. Now, her dad had always been her hero and her protector. Charles found a payphone and forced Deborah to call her father, who understandably had a very hard time believing what she was telling him. 
Charles grabbed the phone and made it very clear, very quickly, that he would hurt Deborah if her father didn't come through with the ransom. While they waited for the money, it became apparent that Charles had some other things on his mind other than just money. He sexually assaulted Deborah and then took her to a deserted cattle yard, left her blindfolded with her hands tied together in the 20-degree cold. After he had left, Deborah managed to inch her way out of the cattle yard and freed herself from the restraints he had tied her up with. She saw a trailer office not too far away, maybe 50 yards ahead, and a woman who was locking the front door so that she could leave. Deborah got the woman's attention and was able to get her to help call the police. Deborah's parents met her at the hospital. It had only been three hours since she had left school. As for Charles, he was starting to have a bad feeling when he got to the place where he was supposed to pick up the ransom. He saw men that he thought might be undercover officers, so he turned and went home. His father was watching the news when he walked in the door. There was a report about a young girl who'd been abducted by a man, and Charles' father told him, look what some crazy guy has done, not knowing, of course, that he was talking about what his own son had just done to Deborah. Thanks so much for being with me today. Since you're listening, I'm guessing that you're finding something of value in this content. And because of that, I want to ask you to share the podcast with friends who you think would like it too. You can even hit pause and do it right now if you want so you won't forget, like I probably would. Go ahead. We'll wait for you. Okay, now let's get back to our story from Dancing with the Octopus by Deborah Harding. The next day was Thanksgiving, and regardless of the trauma that Deborah had just endured, her family insisted on going to her grandparents for their traditional meal. On the outside, everyone seemed like they were just going to pretend that life was normal. On the inside, Deborah was wrestling with some pretty big questions, like where had God and Jesus gone when she needed them? It didn't help that her mother kept reminding her that she was not the only one who had suffered. They had all been very worried and it seemed to occupy her mind more, her own suffering rather than her daughter's. Now, Charles, he couldn't help but brag to his friends about the situation, which wasn't very smart because one of them turned him in. He was arrested and ended up pleading guilty on his attorney's advice. So before he had even turned 18 years old, Charles had been sentenced as an adult to two six to 10 year terms of imprisonment, one for the kidnapping and one for first-degree sexual assault. Now, of course, Deborah's ordeal wasn't over. Her family had been dysfunctional at best before the kidnapping and assault, and things did not improve much afterward. Even after Deborah was grown and a mother herself, the trauma wasn't over. It wasn't done impacting her life. Knowing the things that her mother had done to her made Deborah worry. Was she capable of hurting her own children? She thought suicide might be the answer. Ultimately, thank goodness, she decided that she would try to heal with therapy instead of killing herself. She tried to talk to her mother about things, but didn't get very far because her mom's strategy for dealing with what had happened was to simply pretend that Deborah had made almost all of it up. Her father was a little more receptive and even revealed some of his own childhood abuse and trauma that he'd suffered. His willingness to talk about his own experiences started to help her understand his reaction when she had been assaulted. 
Now, while Deborah was working hard trying to understand and grow, Charles was not. He was spending his time in prison telling everyone that he was innocent. He said that Deborah was his girlfriend and her dad was out to get him. He even conned a prison staff member into giving him Deborah's address and he wrote her a letter. Can you even imagine how that further traumatized her? When it came time for him to be paroled, it wasn't for what he had done to Deborah. He'd served that time for those crimes. But shortly after his initial release, he robbed a bank and was once again back in the custody of the state, where he even assaulted a guard. He wasn't trying to change, but Deborah was still working so, so hard, and she knew she still had more work to do. She'd read an article about something called restorative justice, and it involved conversations between victims and their offenders. She called the prison where Charles was serving his sentence and found that they had what they called a victim-offender dialogue program. Of course, there were going to be a lot of concerns about participating in a program like this. Charles might not respond the way Deborah hoped, which could leave her feeling frustrated or even re-victimized. Now, Charles did agree to participate, and he said he would talk to her about what he'd done. This suddenly made Deborah think of her mother, and she wished that she could go through this process with her, too. Then, devastatingly, at the last minute, Charles changed his mind. That could have been the end of it. But Deborah was so committed to doing whatever she had to do to feel like she had healed from this trauma that she decided that she would attend his parole hearing. A friend of hers who happened to be a longtime corrections counselor gave her some amazing wisdom, and it's something that I want all of us to latch onto and really think about. He told her that there are people who commit crimes because they made a mistake, but there are also criminals who are simply awful people. Restoration and forgiveness is wonderful when people are actually taking the steps they need to take to make themselves better. Please don't confuse people who just want to sound better so they can continue to victimize people. Deborah recognized that attending the parole hearing might not change her offender, Charles, or the decision of the parole board, but it might just change things for her. Before the hearing, she realized that the waiting area they were in was for everybody, and she saw Charles sitting there. She approached him, and they talked, and she asked him how he was going to be different when he got out. He told her he had a plan, and that he had put together a support system. Charles chose to share with Deborah that he had been sexually assaulted as a young man while in youth detention. He thought it probably had something to do with what he'd done to her. Of course, there is absolutely no way for us to know if any of that was true or if it was a ploy for sympathy and a way to avoid taking responsibility for his actions. Knowing that, Deborah decided that she would be cautiously optimistic that Charles wouldn't hurt anyone else. If only she could feel the same way about her mother. Because in the end, her mother didn't and wouldn't change. Charles Goodwin was rearrested three years after his release. But the important thing the wonderful thing is that Deborah changed. She did the hard work that it took to succeed despite her trauma. She couldn't control that Charles and her mother didn't make the same choices. Now, except in extreme cases, we all have that choice to either do the work to overcome our own traumas or to wallow in self-pity and get stuck in that trap of blaming others. So let's hear what our guest today, 
writer and Bible program producer Sarah Schellenberger has to say. Sarah is also the founder of H22 Ministries, which works to help people overcome trauma and walk in the healing of God's power. Welcome to The Unlovely Truth, Sarah. I am so excited for you to be here with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Well, you've got an incredible perspective with your story. And, you know, when we were setting up this interview, something that you said to me really stood out to me about just the whole concept of trauma, how no two people will ever experience it in the same way even when the circumstances of that trauma are fairly similar. Because in this week's book, the trauma that Deborah went through um, damaged her faith significantly. But for you, the opposite seems to be true. And so I'm really interested in why you think that is. Well, you know, first of all, I think one of the things that helped me kind of in getting through my own trauma, because one of the difficulties with any type of trauma is that the is that it's very isolating. A lot of the experience itself, if it's an assault or something like that, happens when there is nobody else around. That's part of what makes it traumatic. And so I think for the person going through it and surviving it, there's a sense that it happened to me by myself. Nobody else can get on the inside of me and understand how it impacted me. And so there's a real sense of being by yourself or being isolated. And I think the enemy gets in the middle of that and starts um, to take advantage of that, telling people that nobody can understand them and that they're all alone. One of the lies that, you know, I think one of the things that survivors um, all struggle with is this idea that not only was there many times not people around to help us, but that because God didn't send a lightning bolt during the assault or an angel didn't appear, and stop it, or there wasn't some supernatural event that happened um, from God, that there's a sense and a fear almost, and then an anger that God didn't see it. And that's probably the number one challenge that every survivor, whether they are close to God or not close to God, has to struggle with this idea that if God saw it, why didn't he do something to stop it? And I think the difference between people that can grab faith eventually after an assault and people that still continue to struggle is just that is being able to have somebody help them bridge that gap between understanding of why just because God didn't step out of heaven and stop it, why he still cares and why he he will still do something about it. And I think when that doesn't happen for survivors, they're kind of stuck in no man's land thinking, oh, God doesn't care. And that's going to be, you know, faith is, um, you know, the Bible talks a lot about real, genuine faith. And when we're honest with ourselves, even if you go to a church and you clap and, you know, raise your hands and have a nice facade, there's really none of us that can genuinely believe, believe in God. And faith is belief or confidence when you think that God could have done something but didn't. And so I think the, the core faith issue is helping people to understand how God interacts with us and that what he can do and what he can't do and what he promises to do when we've been through something like this. 
And you mentioned having someone who can help you bridge those two experiences, those two uh, ways of looking at things. And so how crucial was it for you to find someone that you trusted, find someone who believed in you and had the confidence in you and would give you good godly advice? Yeah, that's, that's the, that's the key to, to overcoming, honestly, you know, and in my situation, probably in like most women's along the way, there was hits and there, there was misses. And so it wasn't that I had the assault and then the next day or the next year, I ran into people that could start speaking into my life, the things I needed to hear. Um, it was difficult to find those people. It was, um, it took a significant amount of time to find those people. Um, the first one was actually a counselor that I got attached to. And then after that, it was a small, very, very, very small group of, of believers. They tended to be older believers that actually were, had been in the missions field or they had lived overseas. They had been through a lot of experiences themselves. They had a lot of maturity and they could start talking to me about the difference between God loving us and being and God controlling everything that happens to us. And so um, finding that was probably the most helpful. Um, you know, you and I have talked, and I know that I know that's a conversation with everybody that is in the process of recovering. Is along the way, one of the challenges of recovering is that you have to be able to not only find the people that can help, but you do have to be able to build a boundary around you to be able to protect yourself from comments and from well-meaning people that don't really know how to help. And so that's almost just as important. And so in my situation, it was a matter of when I came across people, for me, it was in the body of Christ, um, also in the counseling community that would talk about how, um, oh, you know, God knew how strong I was. So he was giving me this horrific event, you know, to, because he knew I could handle it you know, and things like that, that really were quite injurious and did nothing to help me to, to have confidence in God as my father and as God as somebody that genuinely cared and that would, and would heal me on the inside. And so I think it's kind of a both where for every female or males too, you're needing to find the people that can listen and to give you wise words that won't hurt you as well as keeping yourself separate from, again, it's usually well-meaning people but it's yeah i i've i've had a few of those myself i'm sure everyone listening has and can yes. relate um yes and you know that brings up just a whole whole other side of things that this trauma affects a person mentally emotionally and spiritually and even physically right beyond just the initial again, whether it's an assault or whatever it is, because right. when, when you're being torn down mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, that itself takes a physical toll. Did you struggle right. with that? Right. Yeah. You know, that was something I was um, making notes on before we started talking this, this afternoon, you know, and we're made through, we are, we're three part beings, we're spirit, we are soul, which is our mind, our will, and our emotions. And then we've got a physical body. And what happens with an assault is that there's a spiritual law that God put in, in, in motion, just like there's a law of gravity 
that there's just, it's in place at all times. There's nothing we can do to manipulate that. And the law that God has, as far as that marital um, relationship is that two become one. And that means that when two people are um, joined in a marriage act, that what's in the one person's spirit then has free flow into the other person's spirit. And they literally become knit, not just physically, but also spiritually. And so what happens in an assault is that even though it is not consensual, that law of two becoming one in the spirit sense of it, that's, that law is not suspended. And so that what you find is that whatever was working in the person that assaulted you, and it's some form of hell, you know, it's violence, it's hatred, it's anger, it's all those things, the assault will... Uh, gives a legitimate open door into the person that was assaulted where the things that were operating in the assailant then become starting to try to operate in the victim. And so what happens is the victim finds themselves with the stuff on the inside of their spirit. That's basically, it feels like you've got hell on the inside of you and you are filled with the same amount of rage that the person had. You have hatred, you have um, a disconnect and it's very, it's extremely disorienting. Um, our spirits on the core and what's in our spirit impacts our soul. And what seems to happen in trauma when that kind of hell gets in our spirits is it comes out and starts shattering or impacting our souls. And so our minds, it becomes very hard to have orderly thoughts. It becomes very hard to control your emotions. You find yourself dealing with um, not just anxiety, but anxiety disorders where you can't control the anxiety um, you have torment, you've got nightmares, you've got all the things happening in the soulish realm. And of course, that then spills out into our physical. And so then you have the physical impact of just unprecedented stress, which, you know, in my case was migraines, was um, just a lot of adrenaline, not feeling comfortable unless I was running every day, um, having a very hard time sleeping at night, having a hard time eating, having a very challenging um, uh um, you know, self-image as far as not feeling comfortable, um, presenting myself as female, you know, not, not having, um, um, gender issues as far as wanting to be male, but feeling very vulnerable being female and wanting to be able to go, not being able to, not wanting to have that, my gender call attention to when I'm in public, sure. because I felt like my gen my gender was what, put me at risk, you know, what was what made me vulnerable. And so, you know, all those things you're going through, um, you know, I, you know, just for reference, point of reference, I know the viewers can't visually see me, but I've got, I've got blonde hair and I like to keep it long. Well, after the assault, I remember thinking that just makes me feel too vulnerable. And so my first response, honestly, to the assault was I, I got a crew cut. I dyed my hair black. And I started wearing very dark clothing for lots of reasons. One is that that's what I felt like on the inside. I felt very dead. I felt very black. But also, I just didn't want to get any notice anywhere that I went. I just didn't want to walk into the room and have people go, oh, look, that's a female. Because I would be like, I didn't know. Well, who else? You know, I don't know who's got assaults on their mind, you know. And I think part of, part of the dilemma I had was, because the assault had happened in my home and there wasn't really a precursor for it. You know, I hadn't been, 
hanging out in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was just in my home where I should have been, honestly, you know, asleep where I should have been. So it would kind of put a thinking pattern in me that, well, if I can't be safe at home, I really don't know where I can be safe. And so I'd be sitting in the years right after that assault anywhere, really. I'd be outside on the sidewalk in a classroom at my work, and I'd just be looking around. It'd be kind of like I'd be observing it, thinking, you know, honestly, I don't know if I'm safe here. I feel like I'm safe here. But I also felt like I was safe in my home when I wasn't. So I don't know if I am or not. And that kind of, uh, you know, that's more of a soulish thing. But that amount of stress, that's part, that's a good um, example of just how trauma uh, and the impact somebody. And it's really a step-by-step process of recovery. Um, you know, and recovery takes place on all those levels, spiritual, um, you know, your relationship and understanding with God, soul, you know, I had to learn how to eat right. I had to learn how to exercise. I had to learn how to, you know, yoga helped, weightlifting helped, you know, all, you know, very, very practical things helped. And then, um, you know, and then the mind had to be, I had to have a grip on my mind. And for me, what really helped was having sounding boards was I got into counseling right away. And I spent years and years, even after I was kind of had my feet back on the ground, I was just very desirous. I always wanted to bounce my thinking past somebody because I really, I just never wanted my thinking to get off track. And sometimes it was hard for me to decide, am I thinking, am I seeing something correctly or is it being, or am I not seeing it correctly? And so having somebody I could say, this is what I'm seeing. What do you think? This is how I'm feeling. This is what I think I should do about it. Does that sound right? And that was a lot of help kind of getting my my thinking back on track and not overreacting and not, um, or being paralyzed, you know, either way, you know, either overreacting or just kind of being stuck and paralyzed with anxiety. Well, I'm really glad that you brought up the importance of counseling or being in a small group or having a group of friends supporting you. Um, I think so many people think that they've got to go it alone, that they've got to be strong or that they can't tell anybody because they're ashamed. Um, and one thing I talk about a lot is no victim blaming. doesn't matter what the circumstances surrounded, what happened to them. It was wrong and it was evil for that to be done to them. And I think that, you know, you're typing, talking about this, this hyper-vigilance, this hyper-awareness. I think a lot of us go too far the other direction. And we tend to think, well, this is not the type of thing that would ever happen to me. Hmm. Um, but I bet that if most of us kind of look back, we could now see things in our lives that we might not have labeled as traumatic at the time, but they really had a great impact on us and maybe still continue to. And so in a practical sense, what kind of things did you learn that helped you, you know, you were talking about asking people, are you seeing it the way I'm seeing it? What other kind of things did you do um, to really get back your sense of equilibrium? The working out, I'm sure, helped and everything. What else? Well, you know, structure. That one of the things I found was that the, you know, um, terror or adrenaline, and we're, we're all familiar with this, will produce a mind that races. And so a racing mind, it kind of keeps you in this flight mode where, um, 
you know, it's hard to stay still. And if it's hard to have your mind stay still, it's hard to make decisions. And so one of the things that was helpful for me is I put myself in a situation where for a few years right after, I didn't have to make any major decisions. I got a job which was structured and it was well within my level ability. I wasn't, I was about 22 at the time. So it wasn't a career job. It was at 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 a library, in fact, very calm environment. There's no craziness that happens in a library. You just have a lot of books and people studying. And so it was a very calm environment. Um, I was very careful to, um, not that I could have made any decisions because I don't think I was in a place to, but I just kept myself structured. I had a Monday through Friday routine. I had a Sunday routine. I had a Saturday routine. I did not... um, you know, one of the things I was thinking that was even small things, like I did not put myself into debt, um, which would have been just more stress. And I kept things as simple as I could. It was it was a process of just giving myself slack and, and grace, really, and saying, this is something that is taking my whole focus right now to get through every day. And so my focus is just going to be every day. And, um, you know, I didn't, my goal was not to write the great American novel, you know, and then it's like five years after, really even 10 years. I mean, it just wasn't. It was to keep things very simple, very calm. And to me, if I could keep myself as calm as possible during every day, I felt like that was my win. And um, I kept myself away from people that were very, you know, um, dramatic, very, you know, they had a lot of emotions and a little, you know, blow ups. There was not people I was around. I found groups of people that were very, mostly older, very nurturing, very calm. And uh, that, that actually went a long way. Um, So that was some of the practical things. Um, And the other thing is, I, you know, it's funny, but I didn't actually talk about the event. Now, I everybody that knew me, I was very open with them and told them what had happened, generally speaking. I told them the reason I'm, I'm here, you know, in Texas was because I had this assault in California. But, you know, for whatever reason, I, and I'm grateful for it, I just had the sense that talking about it or sharing details or whatever, first of all, I didn't want to. But the other thing was, it wasn't going to change anything. And, and sure enough, one of the things that I kind of stumbled across in the recovery process was just how powerful our words are. And that if I even was, even if I was dealing with anxiety, if I, out of my mouth would speak to myself very reassuringly and tell myself, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. Um, This day is going to be okay. It's going to work out that I started to kind of stumble across this idea that I could start really directing my emotions and kind of keep myself in check with just what I was saying. And so for me, that was a big part of just, um, you know, keeping things simple. And again, the, the, the grace for me, and I I think for other people was having people around me that gave me the liberty to talk about what I needed to talk about. And I would, and I would run things by them. It was always helpful for me to be able to tell people, um, I feel uncomfortable in this situation, or I don't feel safe in this situation. And I didn't have to give too many details, but they would understand it. They would support me, and then they would help me make a different decision. And so those were the things that were helpful. Um, Spending time around, it would have been counterproductive for me to sit down and to rehash the nitty gritty of what happened. I was really trying to get that 
off of my thinking and so I could start getting my mind directed. Um, also, just small things is that for many years afterwards, I didn't have a TV. Not that I recommend that, but I still don't watch the news a lot. I don't just expose myself to trauma um, in general. It's just not something that's helpful or healthy for me. Um, seeing and hearing other people's surviving stories and kind of how they healed and how they overcame that, I will, I will always, I will always listen to those, but not, not the other stuff. Well, I tell you what, as unsettled as the world around us is today, what you're saying, I think, is great advice for any of us. Avoiding negativity, avoiding drama, avoiding traumatic uh, stories, even if they're not our own stories, if that's something that upsets us, keeping our lives simple. Um, and honestly, I don't know how you would focus your faith otherwise in, in a world that we're so easily distracted in. So I think this is tremendous advice just for everybody who's listening. And one thing I love to really, really recommend to people is that, you know, listeners know that I'm a private investigator and I tell them you can be a different kind of PI. You can be a person of impact. You know, I think, I think people really have a deep longing to help others. And sometimes we just don't know how. And so let's say our own lives, we've not experienced something like this, but someone in our circle of influence, our family, our friends, our work circle, our church circle, our neighborhood, wherever it might be. If we know that someone has had a very traumatic event in their life, whether it's sexual assault, another type of abuse, whatever it might be, what are just a couple practical things that we can do to help those people and not be one of those people that unintentionally makes it worse? Well, I think one, one, one of the first things is, is to not assume that you know how that event <clears throat> impacted that particular person. Um, even if you're, a, say, a counselor or even if you are um, somebody that's... Um, knows more than one person that has gone through a particular type of trauma, how that impacted the person and what their deepest heart issue is on that is going to be different for every person. Um, some of it has to do with the age of the person that it happened. Some of it has to do with, the, like we were saying before, the background of the person before the event. And then some of it just has to do with the person's personality or kind of how they're made up. And so, you know, like in my situation, it, it, um, the, the thing that really got me was because it, the um, assault happened under the threat of death. Really, the major thing I was dealing with was a fear of death. And so that's, um, you know, that was particular to me. Also for me, because it happened when I was about 19, I felt like it had, quote, the potential to ruin the rest of my life. And so I had a tremendous amount of fear um, and anger that I would never have a successful life. So those were the particular things I was dealing with. Um, that nobody would have known unless they knew me or they asked me, you know, what's the most troubling thing about this to you? And I think that's a legitimate question. And probably if you know the person well enough would be a helpful question so that they can tell you, um, you know, for some people, if they are already parents, the, the, the predominant need they're going to have or the distress that the event might have is that, oh no, this is going to impact my children. And so 
negatively. And so there's your fear point. That's the point that, you know, that's where you need to come and kind of lock hearts and hands with that person. So I think the first thing is to ask if you can, what is it? What's the foundational? What's the, what's the, the deep part? What's the core issue that's the most troubling to you out of this? And that's going to, that's going to be different for every person. It, it honestly is. There's no two that are going to tell you the same thing. Um, the second thing is that to be able to give the message on whatever level you're able to, that God saw the thing, God did not author the thing, and God will heal it. I think that the fear for all of us that have gone through something that even the word trauma, it's just traumatic to know you've been through trauma. But to have the counter to that is to have people start speaking into your life that can tell you that God can heal trauma and he can heal the broken places that no person can get to. He really can and he really will. And every victim needs to hear that. And every victim needs to hear that just because this happened, that God has a tremendous future for them. That is nothing like what they've been through. And in fact, he will make up for them and give them recompense for what they've been through. And there's your hope point. That's your that's the lifeline that we throw out, even for people that profess no faith, even for people that say, I'm atheist, you know, and I've never met an atheist that doesn't have a good reason to not be one. You know, usually they've been taught something that's not true about God, you know, that they don't know God is love. And so when you can bridge that gap for them, they're all on board, you know, because the Bible says we have eternity in our hearts. All of us have that God-shaped hole in us. And so people want to know who God is. They want to know he loves them, which he does. And so to be able to start speaking into anybody, you know, that God loves them, God saw the thing and God is healing them and will heal them to the point where he'll make their life better than it would have been. And, you know, there's your, there's your, you know, gospel that can be preached always like, you know, and the person that will preach that is not going to be the pastor. It's going to be the friend. It's going to be the aunt, the uncle, the coworker that just has a sensitive heart towards God and has found themselves crossing paths with somebody, you know, that has going through this. And that's where you're talking about being a person of impact. There's your place of impact is being that bridge for somebody. I love that. And I agree 100%. Well, share with us some of your plans for your future. Um, what projects have you got coming up? Well, you know, it's been an interesting kind of a, a last 14 years, actually. You know, the um, the event that, you know, the assault that I went through happened when I was 20. Um, back at the time I was uh, um, in college and the plan of the day, back in the day, was to go to law school. So I wanted to do civil rights somewhere in the South. I had been raised in California. So interestingly, the Lord did call me to the South. So I'm in lower uh, Galveston, Texas. But he rerouted me, and um, after I had, I did end up taking a few classes at law school in my 20s, uh, realized that was not exactly the place that the Lord had for me. And so he had started to talk to me after um, he healed me at the age of 40. He started to talk to me about writing books. And so that's great to know that. And so I was a little unclear which books these were supposed to be. And so I've just started to write, you know, and have a, a number of them out on the website about all just kind of general topics, um, uh, you know, the love of God and healing and all sorts of things that I find, you know, that have been helpful for me. What he seems to have done during COVID is open up this media outlet, you know, churches were closed. And um, so he had no problem opening it up. Um, lots of opportunities over media. He 
has connected us with uh, Paula White Kane's ministry, who has started during COVID a life network for women. And it's an app and it's predominantly for women by women. And so one of the things he's having us do is teaching through that app. And so we teach a show that's called Victory in the Word, and that's for anybody. You don't have to go to a church to listen to that show. And it just teaches about God and and about who he is and um, what kind of, uh, that he's got a good plan for your life. And so um, that, and then he's just started to reopen all this um, about books. You know, we've gotten, again, over COVID, we've had lots of invitations to um, be part of radio broadcasts. We've got a another radio project that we're starting to, we'll be um, starting that's on the East Coast. We'll be doing a weekly podcast as well. And so, um, you know, God's just got, it, it. God is just opened up doors. You know, I feel like when he moves in any of our lives, he wants to duplicate, you know, the healing. He wants to take us. And I know you've used this first before on your podcast, you know, it's the comfort that we've received from him. And that is what he wants us to have a venue to get that out. Um, the other thing he's done is he's gotten the show that we're doing victory in the word. It's airing overseas as well, which I'm very happy about. It goes into 180 nations. And a lot of those nations are, are nations like India and Pakistan and places where women have significant challenges. Um, and so we're, we're very grateful for that. Very, very grateful that people are going to hear that, that message on healing, that they can be healed and that God can put them past really where, where they would have been. Well, I want everyone to be sure to check out the show notes because we'll have links for them to find everything that you have just mentioned. And I just have to thank you again for sharing just incredible words of not only hope, but just really down to earth, practical steps to bring healing, to bring peace. And for all of us, not just, not just people who've experienced trauma. So thanks again for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. The Bible verse that I want to kind of camp out on this week is from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. But I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The older I get, the better appreciation I have for lamenting. And I know it is uncomfortable to sit with grief. We don't like to see others struggling with profound sadness, but it's a completely normal feeling when we have experienced trauma. Jesus himself felt grief when Lazarus died, and he lamented over those who would not turn away from their sin and toward God. Because he understands We can share our grief with him, and we should share it with trusted friends or counselors as well. Most importantly, we need to hold tightly onto the promise of the passage we just read, because there is hope in the Lord. So what's our practical takeaway for helping someone who is recovering from trauma? Well, the first thing is don't just ignore them. I know it's so hard, we feel awkward, we're unsure of what to say or what to do, but they just need to know that people are still there for them. Their trauma hasn't isolated them from the world because that's how it will feel to them. We also need to not do something. We do not need to cheer them up. 
It's much more helpful just to sit with them, to be with them, to give them a hug when they need it or give them space when they need it, but let them know that they are not alone. It also helps when we realize that this is a process. You can be there for them as they're going through all these different stages of grief, not just the initial ones. The last thing I want to leave you with is to let the person who's been through the trauma lead in what their needs are. In other words, don't just try to do things for them that you think would be helpful. Let them tell you what would be helpful. And if they're not comfortable doing that, then just ask them, what can I do to make today a little bit easier for you? And they'll probably say, oh, nothing. Everything's fine. I'm fine. But then you can maybe give them some concrete examples. Can I pick up groceries for you? Do you need some yard work done? Or can I pick up your kids from school if you know them well enough to do something like that? Let them know that you're there for them in whatever way they need you to be. Thanks for joining me on such a very important topic. There's so much trauma all around us that we don't even know about, or maybe we're holding on to our own. And if that's the case, I just really encourage you, find someone you can share that with, you can lament through that with, and you can begin to try to heal. Go to my show notes. There's great links to resources there as well. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and artwork by Shelby Highland. See you all on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 